All right, good evening. Hopefully you were able to gather one of the uh, note sheets from that back hymn cart. If not, there's a little half sheet of paper back there. Uh, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 4, and there'll be four different passages that we look at tonight as we study uh, the life of James the Elder, sometimes called James the Greater, but that's kind of a, <laughs> might, be saying, might be saying too much there, uh, but Matthew chapter 4 will be a good place to, uh, place to get started as we, as we think about this. When we talk about James the Elder, James the Greater, all we mean by that is that he's the older brother, is really what you're getting at when you get the Elder or the Greater here in reference to James. Uh, and just making our nightly connection to the Chosen miniseries that I keep talking about, but uh, the, the connection I would want you to hear is when you watch that series, but really not just watching the series, when you, when you read Scripture directly, which we want to be doing, what stands out sometimes, uh, if we're not careful we miss this, is the incredible diversity among the disciples whom Jesus called. Uh, Jesus didn't call people that had, had it all together, and he certainly didn't call everybody that had the same personality or brought the same things to the table. Um, and I hope tonight that you'll be encouraged by that reality, that one of the things that makes the body of Christ so special is how diverse we are. Um, and, and we're not just talking about diversity in terms of ethnic background, though that's a really wonderful thing. Diversity even to the point of personality differences. Roger, is, if I need to switch to the handheld, I can do that if you think we're okay. Um, so diversity even down to the point of personality differences and what that means to have a sports team or a business or maybe you know something about this, a family and a household where people in the family and household have different personalities. Uh, no surprise for those of you that know uh, me and my wife, but my wife and I just don't have the same personality. Uh, <laughs> like, just completely opposite sides of the spectrum. And, and I don't know how that works in marriage and families, but how often people from different backgrounds come, come together. And so I, we were talking... Um, Earlier this week, uh, our son was over in the other room, and we heard him talking and knew he was talking on the phone to, to some of his friends. And I told Amanda, I'm 39. I don't remember a time I ever picked up the phone just to call another person for the purpose of talking. <laughs> like, that just, I, I cannot, and I can guarantee you, I went the first 18 years of my life and never picked up the phone for the purpose of calling another person. And she said, are you kidding I spent hours every night on the phone with, with my friends when I, when I was a preteen and, and a teenager. She was drawn to that. I couldn't even fathom the idea of picking up the telephone just for the purpose of calling another person uh, to talk. And so, and, and even through the course of marriage, seeing how Amanda's personality and my personality, and you spend time together, and you hopefully you kind of rub off on each other in the best of ways. And then you look at your kids, and you see things coming out, and you try to kind of sort of blame the other person for things you see showing up in your kid's life. You're like, hey, I think that comes from you, or, you know, that comes from your side, and you, you see these type, types of things coming. Here's why this matters tonight. We're going to study tonight about one of the disciples, James, and I want you to think of James and, and Peter to a degree that you studied the last couple of Sunday nights when, when I was out, and I want you to think of James, and I want you to think of Andrew as a, as a counter to James. Andrew comes to us 
as seemingly a, a very low profile, humble, we can say even gentle disciple in a lot of ways. James tonight doesn't come that way. <laughs> James comes to us as a fiery disciple and, and a passionate disciple and a disciple with a lot of zeal. And where we have to see this in the body of Christ is it is good that God did not make us all the same. Now, does it cause conflicts? You better believe it does. <laughs> does it cause difficulty within a group or a church when everybody's not the same? Sure it does, but we're thankful for it. We need that. We need to be able to see things from different perspectives. We need to come at problems from different perspectives. Um, we need people who are ready, aim, fire people, and then we need people who are fire and aim people. Like, oh yeah, maybe I should have aimed, but I went ahead and fired anyway. And so you need people coming from different perspectives to deal with all the things that God's called us to do as a church. So let's get started here looking at James's background, but I want you to have that idea in mind as, as we go along. Matthew chapter 4 Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. The reason James is mentioned first here is because he's the older brother. So oftentimes, James is going to be a part of this connection, this inner circle of disciples that Jesus called. He's a very prominent figure. His name is often mentioned out front. You see here that he's the son of Zebedee. What we know about Zebedee is he was a pretty well-connected guy. James's father had some money because we know they had servants who were involved in the, in the fishing business. It just wasn't James and the kids. So at this point, if you're adding hired hands and servants, it means you have some money. It means you have some wealth. Uh, we also know from later in the Gospels that they had a connection to the high priest. So there are some scholars who think that Zebedee may have been a Levite. Um, in some way, he was a part of the religious higher up because he was able to have access to the high priest in the, in the last days of, of Jesus' life. So this is a pretty prominent family. We also know that James' mother, Salome, well, I think you say the E at the end. It's S-A-L-O-M-E. So it's either Salome or Salome. You hear it uh, pronounced in, in different ways. But we know that she also traveled with Jesus and the disciples at times. And, and she seemed to have had some means as well because it says in Scripture that she was providing some of the things that they needed as they traveled. Um, maybe a bit unfortunate for James that his mother tagged along uh, when, when they followed Jesus. Uh, I think you'll find out that maybe she's that type of mom. She's a little bit of a helicopter mom as you, as you start to see the disciple uh, story unfold here. But she followed along with him. What we know about James, though, is he comes from a prominent family. He's an older brother. He has a mom that's just a little bit pushy. <laughs> and we also know that he has a pretty fiery personality. And we need to be aware of this as we go along. Jesus refers to James and John, you might even know, as the sons of thunder. 
maybe a compliment. <laughs> maybe uh, Jesus' kind of joke about the personality that they were sons of thunder. It, it might be like you look at some of your kids and grandkids at times, and you think, if we could just take that personality and channel it in the right direction. Like all that energy, all that passion, all that strong will. Like strong will is, is so hard when they're under your house, but if you could just channel that in the right way and it could really be used for the Lord. These were sons of thunder. These guys were fiery, and Jesus is going to try to focus them in the right direction. Let's look at two prominent stories about James that I think help us know more about him. Story number one comes in Luke chapter 9. So if you'll turn over just for a minute to the Gospel of Luke, and let's look at Luke chapter 9. We're going to see two stories about James, and then we're going to see a final one about how his life ends and how this all ties together, hopefully, uh, as we go along. So, Luke's going to be that third gospel. So you're getting through the New Testament there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 9. Let's look in verse 51. If you mark in your Bible, I know not everyone does, but if you mark in your Bible, Luke 9.51 is worth a little star or a check mark or some mark. Luke 9.51 is the turning point in the Gospel of Luke. This is a famous verse in New Testament studies. Uh, this is where the Gospel of Luke turns and takes a different direction. It says, When the days drawn, drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Everything from here on is Jesus getting to Jerusalem. This is the mission of Jesus being lived out here. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Well, there you go. That's what you get from, from James at this point. He and his brother see this group of Samaritans that are opposing what Jesus wants to do, and they say, well, we can solve this problem. We'll just call down fire from heaven. Uh, now, is there a positive note here that maybe we can admire their zeal for the Lord? We can admire their passion? It's passion misplaced. It's, it's a strong personality misused. Um, some of you may have that feeling you have a really strong personality and you don't mean to run over other people or you don't mean to misuse your strong personality. It just Sometimes it comes out and you call down fire on heaven from people and you didn't mean to do that. It just, it just came out of your mouth. Um, this is kind of the feeling we get here with James a little bit. Now, here's where Bible study gets really fun. It is absolutely no accident that this happens in connection to the Samaritans. This is one of those places where all the pieces in your Bible fit together in really neat ways. Reminder about the Samaritans. Old Testament. There's the people of God in the Holy Land. Saul, David, Solomon. They're a unified kingdom. And then they break apart after Solomon. And you have the northern kingdom, Israel. And you have the southern kingdom, Judah. Israel in the north is the first kingdom to be taken into exile by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. When Israel goes into exile, not all of them go into exile. Some of them stay there in the land. And what happens is they begin to intermarry with the Assyrians. 
And as they begin to intermarry, what happens is a lot of idol worship begins to rise up at this point. Let's look at a couple of Old Testament places that, that might be helpful here. If you'll go back in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 16. Uh, 1 Kings, so you're going to go pretty far back. Um, let me put a little bookmark here so I can find my way back. Um, We go back to 1 Kings chapter 16. We're going to look in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse um, 23. Okay, so 1 Kings 16, 23. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, so this is the southern kingdom, Omri began to reign over Israel, the northern kingdom. So Omri is going to be the king over the northern kingdom, Israel. And he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terza. Verse 24, he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver. And he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So Omri, who found Samaria, is not a good guy. <laughs> Not a good king, follows after evil ways. If you go down a little bit further um, to verse 29 in that chapter, in the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab, this is a name you may recognize from your Old Testament Bible reading, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, the northern kingdom. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And then if you go down, it talks about how he served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. What you're starting to see are these connections between Samaria and idol worship. Samaria and, and rejection of the way of the Lord. Now go over to 2 Kings. If you go all the way into that chapter, 1 Kings ends, tells more stories about how things are, are beginning to fall apart. And at the end of 1 Kings, one of the prophets who comes on the scene is the prophet Elijah. So the prophet Elijah comes on the scene. A famous story you may know about Elijah. Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. And what does he do? He calls down fire on that altar that's covered in water. So Elijah has a history of calling down fire here. You get to 2 Kings chapter 1. And it says, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go, inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Just Spoiler alert, that's not what you want to do when you're a king in this time. Why did he not call out to Yahweh? 
Why did he not call out to the Lord to heal him? He calls after Baal here. He calls after a false god to bring healing. Verse 3, The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. And the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said, There came a man to us. And he said, Go back to the king who sent to him and say to him, Thus says the Lord. And he repeats the message. And then you go down to verse 9. And the king sent to Elijah a captain of 50 men. And he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Here's a situation where people are turning against the way of the Lord, staying in the way of the way of the Lord, and Elijah, as a prophet, calls down fire and consumes them. Now imagine you're James and John, and you're following the one that you believe to be the Messiah, and you enter into the land of the Samaritans, and they knew their Old Testament Bible way better than we knew our Old Testament Bible, and they think, here we are in Samaria. These people are opposing Jesus of Nazareth, who we think is the Messiah, we know what to do. We'll just pull an Elijah on them. <laughs> and we'll call down fire from heaven and we'll take these guys out. Except what does Jesus say? No. You, you've misunderstood your role here. Your role is not to be Elijah. Your role is not to bring judgment. The Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve. The Son of God did not come to bring condemnation, but to bring salvation. Now, will judgment come on those opposed to the way of the Lord? Absolutely. But what was wrong with James? Wrong time, wrong role. His job there in Luke chapter 9 was not to bring down fire, not to use his zeal to condemn people. Jesus wanted him to learn how to serve people. Here's the amazing part of that story. When you get over to Acts chapter 8 in your Bible, you find that a man named Philip goes to Samaria and preaches to the people about Jesus, and they repent and become Christians, and begin to follow Jesus. If James had called down fire on those people in Luke chapter 9, they would not have been there to hear the message of Jesus in Acts chapter 8. Jesus' time of mercy and patience with them in Luke 9 prepared for them to hear the gospel in Acts chapter 8 and respond. James is having to learn here how do I use my zeal and my passion in the right ways? If you're a strong personality, if you're a passionate personality, if you're a James the Elder type of personality, God, I don't want to use my zeal in a way that drives people away from hearing your good news. God, teach me to be merciful. Teach me to know when to be zealous, when to be uh, a little hard-headed, when to push ahead, and, and when not to do that. One other place I want you to see. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 gives us another picture of James and John here and their mom, who we're going to call a helicopter mom here for a minute. But uh, um, if you don't know the term helicopter mom, it's just a parent that maybe is just a, 
just a little too close to the action. They oversee things. They micromanage their kid's life. They're just a little too involved in, you know, things that are going on. It's good as parents to have some oversight. There's probably a point at which we overstep our bounds and we do that a little too much. And so uh, here's, here's the situation going on. Matthew chapter 20. And I love if your Bible has those little bold subheadings. Before verse 20 in Matthew 20, it says a mother's request. <laughs> it seems so minor here. Just a mother's request. Uh, so here's what the story says. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the other ten disciples heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority. It's not going to be that way among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's a story where a mom and her sons thought, possibly because of their background, their family background, that her boys were entitled to a special place, a special place of authority in, in the heavenly kingdom. And Jesus reminds them, that's not how it works in my kingdom. There are people who in a very good way that God has given them are driven. Type A, alpha personalities, zealous to do great things for the kingdom. Someone who has that personality, that drive in the kingdom of God, always has to be careful that they're not pushing their own agenda, but that they're serving the Lord and wanting glory to go to God. Because you don't have to be around church life very long to see how someone with a strong personality, strong giftings, um, impressive charisma, a lot of drive, can grow a big ministry. How quickly, though, that ministry becomes less about the Lord and more about the person growing that ministry. And that, that, that tug of, am I doing this for the glory of God or am I doing this for personal pride? Am I serving others or am I wanting other people to serve me? Um, and, and frankly, we're living through a period of time where a lot of those leaders are going through times of falling. They've, they've grown these big ministries through zeal and hard personality and a lot of charisma. And behind the scenes, God is saying, are you giving glory to me? Are you serving the kingdom? Are you devoted to the things that matter the most? And so it's a check for all of us in our hearts to say, Am I living for my own glory or am I living for God's glory? Am I serving the Lord or am I wanting other people to serve me? Again, you see where James, his heart seems to be in the right place. Just sometimes he ends up wanting to use it for, for the wrong purposes. Now, let's end up with this. Acts chapter 12. This is where you see the refinement that Jesus does in James' life. Acts chapter 12. It's only fitting that James's story would end in, in this way.
You're also going to see an interesting connection with Peter in this story as well, coming, um, coming along. This is the very beginning of Acts chapter 12. About that time, this is Acts 12.1, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now this passage is helpful in a couple of ways. Here you have a story of James and Peter, both, by a lot of accounts in the Gospels, pretty hard-driving disciples, speak first, think about it later type of, type of characters. Why is James killed, but Peter is rescued from prison? The simple answer is we don't know. Sometimes the Lord's providence and work is that this person will be healed and this person will be rescued from prison. And in this circumstance over here, they're not healed and they're not rescued from prison. Does that mean that the Lord loves this person over here any less? No, no he doesn't. And in his plans and the work of the church, the work of the gospel, the going forward of all of God's good purposes, Sometimes you're rescued from prison, and sometimes you're not. Some, sometimes that healing happens the way we want, and sometimes it doesn't. But you see here, James is the first disciple to be martyred. In fact, the only one who, in Scripture, we get the direct report of their death. And it seems only fitting that the one who always wanted to be first, Jesus says, you get to be first. Uh, you get to be first, maybe not in the way you expected, and I don't think in a vindictive way at all, what I think it is, is a reflection of his zeal for the Lord being used in a really powerful way right here. He's always out front. You know Herod must have hated James, because he's the one pushing. He's the one always out front. He's the one speaking what comes to his mind. He's the one working against evil. And Herod finally says, he can't take anymore, and, and he kills them. And James here has, and I use this word carefully, and, and hear me out, he has the privilege of being the first disciple martyred for his faith, the one who was so zealous for his faith is ultimately martyred for his faith. Now here's something interesting about this story. Watch what happens to Herod later in, in Acts chapter 12. If you go down to Acts chapter 12, verse 20, Acts chapter 12, verse 20, this is after Peter escapes from, or is rescued from prison. Now Herod was angry with the people, of, the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. And because their country depended on the king's country for food, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. In Acts 12, you see James, a disciple zealous for the Lord who ultimately loses his life as a martyr and then you see Herod, the very epitome of pride, lose his life because of his pride. 
And so just as early on we talked about Andrew and James being opposite ends of the spectrum, look here at Acts 12 and don't miss the difference between James and Herod. With James, you have somebody who could be prideful. They, they could be a little abrasive. They could be a little zealous. But the Lord shaped that and used that for his purposes as they trusted him and were obedient to him. Over here you have Herod, pure pride. No desire to give God the glory. Ultimately takes the glory for him, himself and in the process loses his life. What's the, what's the hope of studying James the Elder? It's that you could look at all your type A, alpha, hard personality friends and say, guess what? God's going to use you too. <laughs> you could say that. You could look at them. If you know somebody in your life who has a real strong personality and, and maybe they, you know, speak first, think later, God's going to use that person too. God draws all kinds of personalities, all kinds of background, all kinds of people to follow him. And he shapes us and he uses us. And ultimately, we pray that our life is given for him, that that's what we want to do. Let me pray for us, and we'll get ready to wrap up. Father, thank you for the chance to, to look in Scripture here about a disciple that sometimes we don't know as much about. Um, his brother John probably gets a little more uh, publicity when we think about Scripture, but, but here's James as the older brother, as one who was very zealous for you, a son of thunder, who had some challenges along the way and did some things that I'm sure he regretted later. But God, you used his life in a powerful way. And God, as we, just study, as we study the disciples, remind us of how good it is that we're not all the same, that we have different personalities, different gifts, different talents, different backgrounds. God, thank you for that. And God, take each of us where we are, and God, would you use us, would you work through us for your glory? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.